The reading is from Mark chapter 8, verse 31 to 9, verse 13. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, until it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. Everyone, uh, that's great to get a reply. It's great to get a reply. Let me add my welcome to Kevin's. For those of you who haven't met me before, who who I haven't met before, my name's Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here uh, at Hebron. And we do hope you feel welcome over the course of your time with us uh, today, both during the course of the service and afterwards. Please do stay around after the service is finished and get to know us. Please don't leave without saying hello to someone. We'd love to get to know you a bit better. Now, we've already had a reading. Thank you to Emma for reading from Mark chapters 8 and 9. And as I always say would be the case, it would be helpful um, to you and to me if you could have that open in front of you over the course of the next few minutes. And before we think about it together, though, uh, let me pray for us um, as we spend some time in God's word. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we pray that you would please be at work over the course of the next few minutes as we spend time thinking about your word together. Be at work in me to give me clarity of thought and expression as I speak and be at, thought in, uh, be at work in each one of us 
in the quiet of our own hearts. We ask that each one of us would see Jesus more clearly and come to love him above all else. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, nothing can be said to be certain, wrote Benjamin Franklin, except death and taxes. Death is a great taboo in our culture, perhaps more now uh, than at any other time and in any other place in world history. And yet it is something that affects us all. It's something that awaits us all, despite advances in medical practice and in technology, even since the days of Benjamin Franklin, there remains a 100% mortality rate. We are all certain to lose our lives. What is less certain, though, and what often causes a great deal of anxiety among many people, is the question of when we will lose our lives. While some people try and deal with the question by ignoring it, others want to try and predict it. I found out this week there's a website you can go on to, for example. You can insert some basic personal details and it will then spit out your expected life expectancy. In case you're interested, I can expect to live until I'm 82.2 years old, apparently. I'm told that will be slightly longer if I sleep for eight hours a night, and probably slightly shorter once our third child arrives over the course of the next few weeks. But I'll be honest and say that I haven't been losing much sleep over that estimate, because even with the best statistics and with the best algorithms in the world, we just don't know when we'll lose our lives, do we? Or do we? You see, in the passage we'll be thinking about this morning in Mark's Gospel, Jesus acknowledges that all of us lose our lives. There is a 100% mortality rate. And so the question he's going to ask each one of us to consider is not, do you want to lose your life? No, the question he's going to pose each one of us is, when do you want to lose your life. Just notice that with me. Chapter 8, verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, everyone will lose their life, he says. And in light of that, in light of that certainty, We have two options. You can either follow me, says Jesus, and lose your life now, temporarily. Or you can not follow me and lose it later, permanently. Now that might not sound like a particularly extensive range of possibilities to choose from, nor even a particularly attractive range of possibilities to choose from. And yet... Not only is Jesus crystal clear about the number of available options, he's also crystal clear about the one we should choose. Because even though following him will be costly, he says, will cost us our lives, metaphorically speaking, at the same time, it will be absolutely worth it. That's where we're going to be heading over the next 
few minutes. Let's think about why that is the case. We'll do that under our first heading this morning. Jesus had to go to the cross, verses 31 to 33 of chapter 8. Now we join the story in Mark's account immediately after the episode we thought about together last Sunday morning. You might remember that Jesus had healed a blind man, chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, and that the disciples, Jesus' followers, had started to believe that he really is something special. We read verse 29, Jesus asked his followers, who do you say that I am? In response, you are the Christ, says Peter. There's a dawning realization from his followers and from this man Peter in particular that Jesus is who he claims to be. He is God's king. But just as, Luke, as though, uh, just as it looks as though they're starting to get it, we move into our passage this morning. And we read verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now that is a a radical thing for Jesus to say. Radical for for two reasons, actually. Firstly, because he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now that might sound like quite a generic thing to call someone, like daughter of woman, but it's actually a very, very specific title. Because you see, hundreds of years before Jesus had arrived in the flesh... A man called Daniel wrote about someone who had this title. He was called the Son of Man. And in Daniel's words, the Son of Man would be given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Nations and peoples of every language would worship him. His dominion would be an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. This Son of Man is God's King He has universal power. He has eternal authority. And in Mark 8, Jesus is saying, that's me. That's who I am. Now, I hope you can see that that's a a fairly radical claim to make. But not only is it a big claim, what he says next is also a big surprise. Because this son of man, says Jesus, the one with authority and glory and eternal power, verse 31, will suffer and die. Those two ideas are like oil and water. They just don't mix. Not in the disciples' minds, at least. We see the extent of the surprise from Peter's response, verse 32. Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter could accept that Jesus was God's coming king. He just said as much, but he couldn't take the idea that he was going to suffer and to die. So much so that he starts to rebuke Jesus, to tell him he's got it wrong. But if Peter's response is strong, well, Jesus' response is stronger still. Verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, 
but merely human concerns. Get behind me, Satan. Now that sounds extremely harsh, doesn't it? After all, of of any of the disciples, Peter's at least got part of the picture. He, He at least is starting to understand that Jesus is God's king. And yet Jesus is so very strong with Peter because it mattered so much that he and that everyone in fact understands that Jesus has to go to the cross. He says as much actually. Just read verse 31 again and just notice the phrase he uses. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. It's necessary. It has to happen. Now the notion that the Son of Man would suffer and die was clearly an unsettling and an unpopular idea in Jesus' day. And it isn't a particularly popular idea today either. See, generally the idea that there there was a good man, a teacher called Jesus, well that's not all that offensive in our culture. But the idea that Jesus died a criminal's death on a cross and that he rose again from the dead three days later, that he knew it was going to happen beforehand but carried on to the cross anyway, that he had to die to accomplish what he'd come to do, well, that is a different kind of Jesus entirely. And that kind of Jesus is deeply offensive in our culture. Because you see, a Jesus without the cross is a Jesus who is out there. Yeah, he's a good teacher. He's a shining moral example. He's someone we can look to from afar. But a Jesus with the cross, well, he isn't just someone out there. No, Jesus with the cross holds a great big mirror up to each one of us. Because as we'll see even more clearly in the weeks to come, the reason that he had to go to the cross was us. Was because we have rejected and have disobeyed God and as a result are deserving of his good and right judgment. And not only that, having dug ourselves that cosmic pit, Jesus with a cross says we can't do anything to get ourselves out of that cosmic pit. And that isn't something people like to hear. And yet it is something that people desperately need to hear. Something that people bypass at our peril. Can you see, that's what Peter's effectively trying to do as he rebukes Jesus. He wants a king, but not a cross. And what does Jesus say to him for doing so? Get behind me, Satan. See, put bluntly, to try and bypass the cross is effectively to try and go the way of evil. It is to subvert God's rescue plan, to deny our need of it. And so my question to to you, to each one of us this morning, is whether we believe that we do need it. That it really is necessary that we need to be rescued and that Jesus is that rescuer as he claims to be. Or whether like Peter, you still need convincing of that. 
Now, if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian this morning, and you're wondering why Jesus takes this issue so seriously, why I'm taking the issue so seriously this morning, well, it's because it is deadly serious. It's eternally serious. And yet what might at first sound like bad news is, in fact, extraordinarily good news. That God would send his son to die a rebel's death in the place of rebels like us so that we, rebels though we are, could be treated as sons and daughters. That is extraordinarily good news for anyone who would trust in him, including you. Jesus is very, very clear. He has to go to the cross. Now that might be an unpopular idea because of what it implies about us. But what comes next, if possible, is is even less popular because of what it demands of us. And we'll see that under our second heading this morning. Following the crossbound Jesus is costly, or is it? Now, a number of years ago, I was asked to speak at a Christian Union event on a university campus. And the title I was given to speak on was, Would Christianity Ruin My Life? It's an interesting uh, title. And I was chatting to one of the guests before the event. And when I told him the title that I was speaking on, he he kind of rolled his eyes. Actually, it wasn't a kind of, there was no kind of about it. He just straight up rolled his eyes right in front of me. And he said that it was a pretty lazy setup for, for me to wax lyrical about how great it is to be a Christian. And I'll be honest and say, well, I was inwardly kind of rubbing my hands at that point. Because the answer I gave to the question came as a bit of a surprise. See, the verses I spoke on at that lunch bar were Mark eight thirty-four and 35. Just read with me again, verse 34. Then he, that is Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. See, Jesus says that to follow him means to deny yourself. To deny that you are the king or the queen of your life. Deny the impulse to serve yourself first. And not only that, it means that just like him, you are to take up a cross. Now, the only people carrying crosses in Jesus' day were people on death row. But Jesus says that is just what it's like to follow him. Now, if you were going to run a marketing campaign for the Christian faith, I wonder if that's how you would go about selling it. I'm guessing not. Because no one in their right mind would sign up to that kind of thing, would they? But Jesus says that's just what it's like. And so in my talk at that CU lunch bar, my answer to the question, would Christianity ruin my life, was yes. Yes, it would. Following Jesus would turn your life on its head. He says himself, you need to lay it down to follow him. At which point, not only the guests that I'd been chatting to before the lunch bar, but some of the people who'd invited me to come and give the talk were starting to shift a bit uncomfortably in their seats. I wonder if you can imagine why. That is what he says though, isn't it? But it isn't all he says. 
We thought about that at the start of this talk, didn't we? The question he asks is not, do you want to lose your life? The question he asks is, when do you want to lose your life? Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The point is, you can either lose it now by denying yourself and taking up a cross to follow Jesus. In which case, he promises that you will save your life eternally. Or you can save your life now. Say yes to yourself. Indulge every impulse to serve your own interests above anyone or anything else. In which case, he promises you will ultimately lose your life eternally. Now, it's fairly powerful logic. And hope you can see how radical it is. It does away with, with the lie that people sometimes believe about the Christian faith, of which Christians sometimes like to convince ourselves that we can pursue everything that our world values now at the same time as following Jesus. Can you see Jesus is saying, no, 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 you've got to choose. Lose your life temporarily or lose it later permanently. Which one is it going to be? Now, what will it actually look like to lose your life now, to deny yourself and take up a cross? Well, it might look fairly dramatic. It might involve bold gestures, perhaps moving to a remote part of the world to tell people about Jesus. But it doesn't always. In fact, it often cashes out in the little things. Cashes out quite literally, actually, in how we spend our money, for example. Whether we hold on to money now in order to save our lives now or lay it down in order to take up our lives eternally. Mark's going to make that point explicitly in a couple of chapters' time. We'll spend more time on that in a couple of weeks. But in the immediate context in Mark 8 and 9, what Jesus seems to have his eyes directly on is the issue of shame. One of you noticed that. Just read on with me to verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Again, just notice two choices, either self-service, being too ashamed to stand with Jesus now, in which case shame later, or standing with him now, costly though it may be, an eternal life later. Now to help us, not just to, to understand, but to feel what that might actually mean for us, I want you for a moment in your mind's eye to place yourself into the one, of, one of the conversations you're likely to have this week, whether in your office or in a coffee shop or at the school gates. Imagine in the midst of the regular kind of chats you, you're likely to have, imagine telling someone, perhaps someone you see every day, that you're a Christian. Telling them that following Jesus is the most important thing in your life. And asking them if they'd be up for speaking about the Christian faith sometime. Or coming along to church with you on a Sunday. Or doing a course like Hope Explored at some point. Bring that prospect to your mind. And ask yourself, how does it make you feel? Some of us might have those conversations quite regularly. It might feel like quite a normal thing for some of us. 
but I'm fairly confident that it will have a number of us shifting uncomfortably in our seats. Shifting because of the fear we have about what people will think of us. About the ridicule we might get, either to our faces or even worse sometimes behind our backs. And yet, sticking with Jesus and stepping into that kind of ridicule in order to identify with him is part of what it looks like to take up a cross, to deny self, and to follow Jesus. Part of what it looks like to lay down your life now in order to take it up again eternally. Now, of course, I'm not saying that Christians are to live our lives as as ascetics and that there's no joy to be had in the Christian life. There is great, great joy in the here and now as a Christian. Jesus says that he holds out abundant life. It's a wonderful thing. And yet, at the same time, the pattern that Jesus sets out for us, the pattern that he himself lived, was suffering now, glory to come. And so the question I would ask each one of us is is whether we really believe that that's true. That even though it'll be costly to follow Jesus, costly to stick with him, that it'll be more than worth it. Or does it feel like a bit of a gamble? We can think that, can't we? What, What I can see and feel now sometimes feels so much more certain than what I'm being promised in the future seems much safer bet really and so staking your life on something you can't see or touch might feel like a bit of a flutter well if you aren't if if that is you if that's something that that does come to your mind then you aren't the only one because the disciples it seems aren't that sure either which is why jesus does what he does and why mark tells us what he tells us next and we'll think about that under our final heading this morning the crossbound jesus is god's glorious king so listen to him chapter 9 verses 1 to 13 now a friend of mine who's a lawyer to trade completed his legal training at quite an illustrious firm of solicitors in london what are known as the magic circle firms and they really work their trainees very, very hard. Indeed, a number of the firms have, have beds in their offices to save trainees the hassle of, of traveling home between finishing work at 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and starting again at 6.30 that very same morning, which I'm sure you can agree is a very considerate move for those firms. And there are a number of ways that firms like that convince people to come and work for them. They do it with perks, for example. High salary various benefits as part of their remuneration. But my friend told me of another way that they look to retain staff. Because on one of his first days, a senior partner in the firm came to speak to the new recruits. And he said he knew how hard it could be to be a trainee with the firm. But it was a really difficult thing to do. Why? Because he'd been exactly where they'd been a number of years before. He'd been a trainee there too. But what he'd come to tell them that morning was that although it was going to be really challenging for a while, that it would be costly to train there, he said, nonetheless, he was walking, talking proof of what awaited you if you stuck with it. One day, if you keep going, then you too could have a senior partner's office, he said. Now that might be a more or less attractive prospect to some of us than to others, I'm guessing. And yet there is a sense in which the scene we read next in Mark's account is, albeit very imperfectly, 
a little bit like that dynamic. Because Jesus knows fine well that, that what he's asking of his disciples is a very, very big deal. That it's costly. And he knows it is because he's about to face the same thing himself. He's just told us at the end of Mark 8. And yet costly though it is, Jesus wants to convince his disciples that that pattern of suffering now, glory later, is not just pie in the sky when you die. But that when you lay your life down now, you really will take it up again in eternity and take it up gloriously. And to convince him of that, he takes his followers, three of them at least, up a mountain, chapter 9, verse 2. And on the mountain, we're told that he is transfigured before them. What does transfigured mean? Well, Mark explains, verse 3, Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Jesus is shining in a blaze of dazzling, glorious white in front of his followers. It's a remarkable scene, isn't it? Now, why are we being told about it here? Well, I think because it serves to convince the disciples to convince us of what Jesus has just said. It does that in two ways, actually. Firstly, proof that the pattern Jesus has laid out for them, that pattern of suffering now, glory later, is not pie in the sky when you die. It's something like the trainee solicitor seeing the senior partner's corner office. It's a glimpse of the future that is awaiting them. As much as to say, stick with Jesus because his path of self-denial leads to this kind of glory. And don't we sometimes need convincing of that? That suffering now will be followed by glory. Just how would the conversations we have in the office kitchen or the staff room or at the school gates this week change if we were really clear in our minds about what is to come and if we weren't trying to hedge our bets? See, whilst following Jesus, well, it might well ruin your life in one sense here and now. He wants to persuade us that it is infinitely worth it to take up a cross to follow him. That's the first reason we're told about the transfiguration here and now, I think. But there is a second reason. And uh, to see that, um, I wonder if any of us have picked up on the fact that the Oscars are going to be awarded in just a few weeks' time. I'm guessing most of us won't have. Uh, The nominees have just been announced, though. To be honest, I'm not someone who keeps up to speed with with the award ceremonies of uh, the Hollywood elites. The only reason I'm aware of it is that there's been a bit of a furore over the past few weeks about one of the nominees for Best Actress, a woman called Andrea Riseborough. She appeared as the main character in in a low-budget film called To Leslie didn't initially get much attention. She, she wasn't nominated for the Golden Globe Awards or for any of the other major awards handed out at the end of last year. But by the time the, the Oscar nominees were announced at the end of January this year, just a couple of weeks ago, she was among them. And that came as a big surprise. Or at least it would have come as a big surprise had it not been for the fact that in the first three weeks in January... A number of Hollywood stars like Gwyneth Paltrow and Charlize Theron and Kate Winslet and Mark Ruffalo, they'd all made public statements praising her performance in that movie. After which, the Oscar Academy, it seems, paid a bit more attention to the film. 
and included Risborough in their list of nominees. Because you see, when influential people, important people, throw their weight behind another individual like that, it can give that individual more credence, can't it? It can make you sit up and pay attention to them. And again, on a pale and a much more fleeting scale, that is a tiny bit like what happens on the mountain with Jesus and his three followers. As Peter, James and John make their way up the mountain, verse 4, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. Moses, who wrote down much of God's law in the Old Testament, two big, big hitters for Jesus to be rubbing shoulders with. And yet even they, well, they aren't half of it. Verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. God himself lending his voice to the commendations. Now, if you were here when we started studying Mark's gospel last year, that verse might actually be ringing some bells with you. Because right at the beginning of Mark, we heard God saying something very similar. If you remember, Mark chapter 1, a voice from heaven commissioned Jesus for all that he was about to do. God spoke to Jesus in Mark chapter 1, you are my son, he said. So we're in familiar territory, but only here in in, in Mark 9, just notice that the voice isn't talking to Jesus. It doesn't say, you are my beloved son. No, the voice is addressing those looking on. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, why are the disciples being told that now? Why are we being told that here at this point in Mark's gospel? Well, again, it's to convince us to listen. To listen to what Jesus is telling us about his life of suffering service. The fact that it was necessary that he would suffer and die. To listen to his call to live a life of suffering service. To take up a cross to follow him. And to listen to his promise that that suffering service will be followed by eternal glory. Moses and Elijah and God himself all vouch for it. And so let me encourage us all to do just that. To listen to Jesus' call. The call of God's king. To be willing to stand with Jesus even when it's costly. Because listen, he isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. And because he promises, and in fact he proves, that as we do, we are not losing our lives, at least not ultimately. No, it's quite the opposite. We're saving them eternally. Let me ask him for his help to do that now. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for the extraordinary good news of Jesus Christ. That he lived the life we should have lived. That he died a rebel's death. All in order to save rebels like us. 
from being cut off from you as we so deserve and instead to welcome us into your family. We ask this morning that you would please impress upon all of us just how serious that news is and yet just how wonderful that news really is. Help us please to treasure it, to treasure you as our Saviour God. And for those of us who have trusted in you, we ask that you would please help us to stick with you. Even though it will bring flack and difficulty. Even though it will be costly. Because it is a cost that is infinitely worth it. Would you please help us to grasp that? And so to go forth and tell. We ask all of this for our joy and for your glory. And we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.